Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. The oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico demonstrates how reliant we are on our oceans for food, energy, and jobs. Today we take a look at the state of the oceans around America and discuss how to reconcile competing claims on marine resources. Last summer, President Obama announced a new national oceans policy. What will it accomplish? How can we balance the needs of today with the rights of future generations? Should we drill for oil at sea or on shore? Here to discuss these questions and more with our audience in San Francisco are two senior officials from the Obama administration. Nancy Sutley is chair of the Council on Environmental Quality at the White House, and Jane Lubchinko is administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you both for coming. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Nancy Sutley, let's, let's begin with you. Uh, the National Oceans Policy, you know, what is it and, and what is its significance? Well, we started this effort. Uh, the president asked us to lead a, a task force of uh, really an al- alphabet soup of federal agencies because so many agencies have a piece of the oceans. And he asked us to look at really three things. One is, what would a National Oceans Policy look like that was focused on our stewardship of our marine and coastal resources. Um, what should the federal, how should the federal government organize itself? And, and I know that sounds very bureaucratic, but when you have that many agencies with a little piece of the ocean, it turns out to be a very important question. And the third thing he asked us to do was to look at, um, the, look at something, which I'll, I'll only use the term once, coastal and marine spatial planning, which is thinking about a way to organize activities the, the things that we value in the ocean, uh, in the oceans, and, and how we sort of organize those uses. And so we took about uh, a year uh, of intensive effort of a lot of meetings, uh, a lot of public meetings. We did one here in San Francisco uh, last September, uh, a lot of expert uh, roundtables to talk about these, these three questions. And what emerged from that is a, a very um, a, a long report, uh, but uh, an executive order from the president establishing this national oceans policy 
establishing a National Oceans Council, uh, which I co-chair along with uh, Dr. John Holdren, the chair, uh, the uh, President's Science Advisor and Director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and a framework for organizing our uses uh, of the ocean. And I think at the, at the core of that ocean's policy, and I will steal uh, Jane's uh, very good line, uh, which is for the first time, the United States has articulated a policy that says that healthy oceans matter. That's really at the heart of the policy, in that we have to think about our stewardship responsibilities for today, for the uses today, uh, for uh, restoration, preservation of healthy oceans and coastlines, uh, and, um, and that the federal government has a responsibility to the public to uh, organize itself into this National Ocean Council to carry out this policy and to uh, coordinate and be more coordinated in the way that we approach the oceans. And you know, I think the, the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico sort of shows that we have a lot of competing uh, uses of the ocean, whether it's just the habitat value, uh, seafood production, uh, uh, energy production. And we have to be a lot smarter uh, and use the information that we have about uh, these uses and the appropriate uses and where it's, where it's not appropriate to do anything in the ocean um, and organize ourselves better. So that's the, that's the work that the National Ocean Council is going to take on. But we also recognize that you know, each region of the country, each coastline is different uh, so that all of this work is going to be done at the regional level. So um, you know, the West Coast, the, the governors of uh, Washington, Oregon, and California have already organized themselves uh, on, uh, on the oceans. Uh, so to take the work that's been done in California and along the West Coast, uh, in Rhode Island and along the New England coast, um, and try to um, bring st uh, federal, state government, local government, communities together to make smarter decisions uh, about our ocean resources. So that's, in a nutshell, what we're and trying Jane, to do. Lubchenco, <laughs> how is this going to affect uh, the, the lives of, of, of uh, commercial people who make their living from the ocean or people who enjoy the ocean? Bring it down to sort of what it's going to mean to, to American citizens, this new National Oceans Policy and Council. Greg, I think a good place to start is what's happened in the Gulf. And I think it really does, as Nancy says, uh, illustrate how people's lives and livelihoods and our economy is dependent on healthy oceans. And when we have a disaster like the one that happened in the Gulf, uh, it really uh, underscores in very um, sad but graphic ways um, how many people in that region really depend on a healthy Gulf for, uh, for, their, uh, for their jobs. Uh, and <clears throat> the reality is that so many things that uh, we do on land or in the oceans uh, have inadvertently contributed to degradation of the oceans over decades and decades and decades. And this new national ocean policy is quite remarkable because it really does say that healthy oceans matter and that we have a collective responsibility to get our act together and to do more than an issue-by-issue, sector-by-sector approach, a more holistic understanding of how we can use oceans without using them up, how we can 
work together uh, to make decisions uh, with the people who are affected in uh, an area uh, about what combination of activities can coexist in an area that will minimize conflicts and minimize adverse uh, environmental impacts and do so in a way that can streamline regulations, can streamline uh, the kinds of hoops that we have to go through, but focusing on the bottom line of ending up with, uh, with healthy oceans. So this is a, a new process. Uh, it teed off the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy and the Pew Oceans Commission uh, we learned huge lessons from what states and regions have done. Uh, and California had lots and lots of really good things in process that we could tee off from uh, and, and, and listen to and learn from. Uh, but we're really in the early stages of this. So just hypothetically, if this had existed three years ago, would it have prevented what happened in the Gulf? Would it... How would it it be different if this had existed, or what will it do to prevent future crises like that? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's uh, difficult to play the what-if game uh, mm-hmm. because we have hindsight now. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that the process we envision will enable all the relevant agencies to work with the regions and craft a vision for... Um, a large marine ecosystem, whether it's the Gulf or the California current large marine ecosystem or New England or whatever, uh, and have a better process for uh, working together to define the combination of activities that can enable a healthy ocean uh, and can uh, minimize, I mean, oceans are becoming increasingly crowded places and there are more and more conflicts. And so this is an opportunity to work with the full range of users and do some... Uh, I, I learned lots of new terms with the Gulf uh, disaster. One was deconflict, <laughs> And we need to deconflict oceans, uh, among other things. So a lot of different organizations need to talk to each other, and you're the key referee when they, when they don't disagree. And if I understand this correctly, this new executive order requires people to talk to each other, but still they have their own organizational mandates and no one can tell another agency what to do uh, that they couldn't do before. So it it could be, how's the outcome going to be different? Well, I think I'd say a couple of things. One is, and I think it gets back to the question about about the Gulf, is I think we're really doing two things. We're we're getting everybody to the table. And um, it, it may come as a surprise to some people, uh, but probably not, that not everybody in the federal government talks to each other. And even people who work on similar things don't necessarily talk to each other. So getting everybody around the table, and not just the federal government, state and local government communities will be a part of this, this, this planning process. I think the other thing uh, that it will do is it will bring all the information we have in one place and bring all that information together. So. Uh, NOAA as an agency, a science agency, has a, an enormous repository of information, uh, observational data about the oceans. Uh, other agencies do too. And I think one of the things as we were putting this together that was so remarkable um, from my perspective is that you know, we had sort of the usual suspects, uh, NOAA, EPA, uh, the Department of the Interior, who have these stewardship responsibilities over our natural resources. But we also had the Coast Guard, 
Uh, and the Coast Guard um, not just uh, kind of dragged along to participate, but seeing real value for their mission of protecting you know, people on the seas. Uh, the same with the Navy and the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, and the National Security Council, people whose primary responsibility isn't resource management or resource stewardship, seeing the value of being around the table with the resource agencies and with the agencies who have access to that kind of data and information and expertise that can help them do their job in deconflicting uh, and, as Jane said, and, and reaching their mission. So it was a, it was a, really, um, it was a really remarkable uh, process in that way, and I think it, came, it shows in the outcome of really strong support uh, across, across the federal government uh, and by the president for this policy. Nancy Sutley is chair of the Council on Environmental Quality at the White House. She's here at Climate One with Jane Lubchenco, who is the administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I'm going to start saying NOAA because I'm just not going to get all <laughs> that Noah's out. NOAA's good. Yeah, NOAA's good. Uh, let's take a specific example. There's a new agency, formerly MMS, that's now called the Bureau of Oceans Energy Management and regulation and enforcement, people call it bummer. I know you don't like that. Um, we, we, were told, we were told to call it BOEM. BOEM, okay. So bummer. Um, so, uh, <laughs> All right, well, so if they're listening, I tried. <laughs> how is the operation of that entity going to be different now that there's a National Oceans Council? It still resides in the Department of Interior. Mm-hmm. How, how will that be different now that other interests are required to be incorporated into how we use our oceans? Well, you know, they have, I think, they have their uh, requirements that are laid out uh, in, in the laws that govern them about how uh, they make decisions. But I think what we have is a whole new dimension of um, collaboration uh, with, their, with the, the entire uh, federal family and then in these regional planning organizations with state local government uh, communities. Um, and then access to a whole lot more information and data than, than they keep with, within themselves. And I think, uh, you know, as Jane said, this is, we're sort of at the beginning of a process, and we're going to learn a lot together about how we do this. But what we have is a statement uh, uh, on behalf of the federal government by the president that this is the national ocean policy to, to um, put in the forefront our stewardship of our ocean and marine resources and preserving, protecting, and restoring them. Uh, And so I I think we're going to learn a lot in the next few years um, uh, as a National Ocean Council and each agency that participates in that. And so we expect uh, uh, the Department of the Interior and BOEM uh, to be, uh, uh, as they have been to date, an enthusiastic participant in that and seeing the value um, of that collaboration, and that access to information that they don't uh, have right at their fingertips right now. President Bush uh, created a large uh, marine preserve near Hawaii. I believe it was 140,000. I think Jane can actually pronounce it. Papahanaumokuakea. There we go. Ah. (laughs) Wow. There we go. That's pretty good, huh? Um, 100 times the size of Yosemite. Uh, Is it working? Uh, Is that a success? Should we do more of those, put certain parts of the ocean just off limits where little or no human activity happens? Dr. Lubchenco? The uh, scientific evidence that's coming from areas that are like Papahanaumokuakea that are no-take marine reserves 
uh, is that they bring tremendous benefit both to the habitats, to the species within them, and that much of that benefit spills out to adjacent areas. Uh, It protects vulnerable habitats. Uh, It can protect uh, species so that the individuals can get very large, and large individuals have much greater reproductive potential to make more young. And there is very powerful evidence coming from not only that area, but others like it around the world, uh, that those uh, no-take marine reserves uh, can bring very significant value. Uh, One of the issues that will face everyone thinking about uh, marine spatial planning of one sort or another is what combination of those protected areas, uh, ideally in a network so they can be linked by the movement of juveniles and adults, uh, a not unfamiliar process to people who have been uh, in California with the Marine Life Protection Act uh, Mm -hmm. process, which is also thinking about networks of protected areas. Uh, But to consider... uh, Instead of the approach that people have today, which is uh, a sectoral approach, just fisheries, one one, um, agency regulates fisheries, somebody else regulates water quality, somebody else pays attention to conservation, somebody else pays attention to shipping, uh, somebody else pays attention to drilling for gas or oil. And this piecemeal, sector-by-sector process, including conservation in that, is part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And what this new National Ocean Policy and the National Ocean Council, the regional planning bodies, uh, is setting up is a mechanism for thinking more holistically about how those pieces fit together and how we can... Uh, incorporate good conservation as part of a larger strategy. So we know that those areas uh, are very important, bring good benefit. Uh, We know that in some cases, having a really, really large one like that one uh, or the other uh, very large ones that are in the Pacific, um, the Republic of Kiribati has another very, very large area. Uh, there's There's a role for those large ones. Uh, There's also a role for networks of smaller ones, but that needs to be cast in a larger context of the combination of activities uh, that should appropriately be in those places. So it's okay to use use oceans, we just don't want to use them up. And so you need a combination of balanced approach. And Are there we're, partic- we're sort of out of balance now, which is why this healthy oceans matter, this stewardship responsibility is so important. Are there particular places, do you have a wish list? Are there top one or two places that you would like to set off as, you said, no-take zones or, or marine preserves? There are two reasons to consider no-take areas. One is to protect special places that have some unique character on land that would be Yosemite, for example, or Yellowstone. Another important uh, criterion is to protect um, enough of, the, of critical habitats that you have um, enough uh, to, to protect the, the ecological processes that are important for that entire area. 
And in that second uh, consideration, you, it's not that there are particular places. You just need enough of each habitat type, for example, to protect. And so there's sort of two different concepts that need to be considered if you're thinking about uh, setting aside areas in the ocean. And they both are important, they, but they serve different purposes. Let's talk about food for a minute. A lot of the strain on the oceans is from our appetite for fish, which we think is good for us, but that causes all sorts of problems. Uh, there's a new book out called For Fish by Paul Greenberg that chronicles a couple of fish. And he raises the question of GMO, genetically modified fish, being a good thing because it would reduce strain. And he's talking about in contained areas where they can't escape. And it relieves the pressure on the fresh fish stocks. It doesn't have the problems of, of fish farming. Uh, what do you think about that as environmentalists? Nancy Sutley? I'm going to give the hard questions to Jane. Um, <laughs> but, but I do, th- I mean, look, we, I think it gets back to the, um, we, we, we have to do a couple of things. I mean, one is we have to, we have to go where the science tells us. And, and as, as you hear, Jane is, is an, an eminent um, uh, marine ecologist uh, and understands these uh, interactions very well and, and ha- runs an agency full of scientists who understand these, these interactions very well. Um, and so as we think about um, whether it's aquaculture or something else, uh, some other use of the ocean, we need to bring that science to bear and we need to go where the science uh, tells us to, 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 to go. But we also have to recognize that there are increasing demands on the, on the oceans. There are increasing demands on our, uh, our marine resources. Uh, there's increasing pressure from pollution and development and climate change. Uh, we increasingly uh, recognize the connection bet- that what we do on land matters uh, to the ocean. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, as we look at what we're trying to do is not to look at, at sector by sector, activity by activity, statute by statute, agency by agency, but look across mm-hmm. um, these areas, uh, starting at the regional level, uh, to try to understand... Um, whether uh, aquaculture belongs, does it belong anywhere, and if so, where and how, and, and, uh, and what information, what do we need to understand about the, the impact on, these, uh, on our ocean resources uh, or Chinko, things like that. Chinko, what do you think about? Could we entertain the, that idea? As the agency that's responsible for managing marine fisheries and marine aquaculture, these areas are right in NOAA's uh, bailiwick. Um, And I think the real key focus needs to be on um, identifying and then implementing sustainable practices and policies. And we are uh, in the process of... Uh, trying to end overfishing and to recover various uh, species uh, as well as ecosystems that have been significantly depleted. Um, That's not an easy thing to do, uh, but it is one that uh, we're beginning to make some headway with and changing some of the incentives so that there is more incentive to think long-term, to to be good stewards. Um, On the aquaculture front, there are some very significant challenges. Um, aquaculture is neither good nor bad. Uh, it is uh, very important to the future of the planet, 
but it needs to be done in a way that's sustainable. And uh, that's an easy thing to, to do, to, I mean, to say. It's a harder thing to do. Uh, and uh, one of the, uh, we are in the process at NOAA at working on uh, a sustainable aquaculture policy, and we've been having lots of listening sessions on this, uh, and are guided by a lot of good thinking that has already gone on about this. Uh, farming things that are lower uh, trophic species, that, 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 that herbivores essentially, uh, is a lot more benign. Uh, tilapia, catfish, uh, for example, uh, than the carnivores, uh, salmon, for example, uh, or the way many shrimp are farmed uh, is uh, by feeding them fish meal. A lot. So, feed, feeding, uh, so aquaculture practices are quite variable from one species, or what, what is sustainable is partly a function of what you feed them as well as the conditions under which you're growing them, whether they're native or not. Uh, and so it's actually a very rich discussion. Uh, and uh, California uh, ha- actually is a leader in many regards, but California's uh, legislation on aquaculture is actually a very nice model, and we have looked at that very carefully. And has, it has a lot of really good elements that, that are important to define what does sustainable aquaculture look like. That doesn't sound sustainable. Doesn't <laughs> Whatever that noise is. Um, hopefully not. <laughs> Apologize for that. Um, so as far as genetically modified organisms, is that something if the science leads that should say is it safe, you're willing to consider that? Or a lot of Americans think that that shouldn't open that can of worms because it, it only leads to bad things. That view, I think, prevails in Europe. So should GMO be even on the table, should be considered? GMO uh, is a very challenging issue for many societies. Uh, And uh, I think the jury is still out on a lot of the scientific issues. Uh, For GMO fish, there's a lot that we don't know, in part because a lot of the information is proprietary. And so it's very difficult to evaluate what uh, the companies that have developed these things say about it because there's no independent verification. So I think there are a lot of questions that need to be asked about that. How about bluefin tuna? I was in a restaurant recently in San Francisco, and the sushi chef was bragging about the fact that eat it while you can because it's going soon. And I was appalled and refused to order. And I mean, But that mentality is out there. Are we going to be able to save bluefin tuna? Is it, this policy going to have any impact? Obviously, this is an international issue. Um, and there's been a lot of concern. Is bluefin tuna going to go away? Can we do anything? Well, we, uh, the U.S. government made a, a real attempt uh, at the uh, annual or biannual meeting of the, um, of course, I'm going to forget what it means, but the CITES uh, organization, the organization that uh, regulates the trade in endangered species. And we tried uh, to get the bluefin tuna listed uh, because, um, uh, and Jane will correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, they, they're, they're very uh, few of them left, uh, and they are, uh, I think, rapidly approaching the point where it may be impossible uh, to to save them as a species. They're very highly prized, um, and uh, so we tried very hard uh, to get them uh, listed uh, and ran into a a lot of resistance. So 
uh, we're evaluating what options we have. I think uh, it is an, it's an international issue uh, that the world has got to agree on a strategy uh, to deal with, uh, with the overfishing that is, is causing this species to be on the brink of, of extinction. But by the time everyone agrees, it's too late. Well, we, we hope not. Okay. And we, ha we have other mechanisms uh, that we're pursuing through regional uh, fisheries management organizations, uh, and we're looking at what our options are to see uh, what we can do. But, but the, the U.S. government um, believes that we need to do something and do something soon. Is yellowfin a little different, less dangerous, less perilous? I mean, there are even eco-lodges here in San Francisco that have yellowfin on the tuna, with, uh, yellowfin on the menu, which surprises me, but is that... You know, it's hard to uh, keep track of all the different species, and a lot mm -hmm. of people are confronted with going to a restaurant and sort of not knowing. They, they're, they have heightened awareness that there are some issues. They don't know what they are. Uh, and <clears throat> um, there are a number of organizations, for example, the Monterey Bay Aquarium that has a seafood watch card. It's fantastic. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, there's and, an iPhone app now. You and there's an iPhone app for it. I was just going to mention that. Uh, and that's, that's very cool. So it's, it's, yeah. it actually is um, an easy way to stay current with uh, what is sustainably farmed or caught uh, in a way that can help inform consumers, provide information to consumers so that you can make up your own mind. Uh, let's talk about coral. There's been a lot of concern about coral disappearing. It, it, Dr. Lubchenco, you know, what is the prognosis for, for the coral systems in our lifetime? Uh, at a global scale, corals are in very serious trouble, and they are threatened by a whole suite of different types of um, threats, one of which... Uh, is now climate change, uh, and with ocean waters warming, that stresses corals. Uh, and there have been many, many bleaching events over the last couple of decades that are very highly correlated with uh, warmer waters. Uh, What's a bleaching event? Corals are animals, and they contain uh, microscopic plants inside their um, bodies, uh, those microscopic plants are called zooxanthellae, and those plants capture sunlight and convert it into food, essentially, that they can pass on to the coral. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, in turn, the coral provides a nice little home uh, and um, protects the alga from being eaten by uh, herbivores that might be out in the ocean. Uh, and when a coral is stressed, it often uh, expels these microscopic plants, the zooxanthellae. Uh, and <clears throat> the, those uh, zooxanthellae give the coral their, their color. And when those zooxanthellae are lost, the coral looks white because there's no pigment in the coral itself. Uh, and many corals... Uh, cannot recover from that. Some can recover. Some can reacquire uh, the zooxanthellae. So different corals are different. Corals can bleach uh, if they're stressed by a number of different things. So warmer water can stress them. Uh, if they get, if there are upstream uh, poor management practices, um, clear-cut logging, for example, 
that dumps a whole bunch of sediment in streams and that comes down into coral reefs, especially if mangroves have been eliminated from an area. Uh, that sediment can smother corals. Uh, so there are a number of things that uh, are threats to corals that cause bleaching. There's also very serious overfishing, and in many parts of the world until relatively recently, and, and still in some places, uh, people use dynamite to uh, catch the, small, the few small fish that are remaining in an area that's already been significantly overfished. So overfishing, climate change, uh, poor land use practices are all contributing to degradation of corals. Uh, and what does that mean for the, for the ocean system? Coral goes away? So corals long. are really important habitat for, you know, they are the, the, the rainforests of the sea. They provide the three-dimensional structure for sponges and tunicates and uh, fishes and sea urchins and sea stars and all the other amazing sea life. They live in that structure that's provided by the coral reef. Uh, and you lose that structure, you lose the habitat, you lose the base of the, of, of, of the food chain, uh, and you, you just don't have, uh, you know, you, you lose most of the species that are, are dependent upon that. Bad news. Jane Lubchenko is administrator of NOAA. She's our guest here at Climate One today, along with Nancy Sutley, who's chair of the Council on Environmental Quality at the White House. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, you mentioned climate change. Let's talk about uh, that. Uh, NOAA recently announced that this was the fourth hottest summer on record in the United States. El Nino is, is increasing. So paint a picture for us, for us what we can expect on the oceans uh, in this era of climate change. The uh, increasing amount of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and others in the atmosphere, um, uh, are causing the planet to warm, but it's not just warming. There are a lot of changes that are happening in addition to that. And I mentioned the problems that warming is causing for corals. That excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is doing a lot more than just causing the planet to warm. Uh, one of those other things it's doing is making oceans more acidic. And as there's more and more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, <clears throat> the oceans have been soaking up some of that carbon dioxide. And as oceans take up CO2, carbon dioxide, from the atmosphere, uh, there's a chemical change that happens uh, that makes oceans more acidic. Uh, the carbon dioxide is converted into carbonic acid, mm -hmm. and oceans are more acidic. That means that anything uh, that has a calcium carbonate shell or skeleton from corals to a lot of microscopic plants to sea urchins uh, to lots of other creatures in the ocean that have shells, it's harder for them to make shells, and those shells dissolve more rapidly. And so at, oceans have become 30% more acidic in the last 100 years because of the carbon dioxide they've been absorbing from the atmosphere. So this is yet another reason to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, and it's one of the ways in which uh, 
oceans are bearing the brunt of many of our uh, activities in, in a way that was obviously not intended, but is very problematic nonetheless. I mean, in a way, it's good that the ocean, well, it's good for the greenhouse gas effect that the ocean is absorbing that carbon, but it's, if I understand you correctly, it's really hurting, hurting the oceans. Um, let's talk about extreme weather events. In, you know, obviously, we hear about NOAA and hurricanes and, and extreme weather. Uh, will the frequency increase? Will the intensity increase? Uh, what can we expect along that front? And then I want to get Nancy in on how the, the policy might have, mm-hmm. you know, the, this new policy might plan for more extreme weather events. All of the uh, good, solid scientific uh, predictions that we have about what's likely down the road with climate change, uh, not so much predictions but forecasts, uh, really point to much greater variability and more extreme events. And so the um, just uh, amazing uh, stretch of heat wave that Russia has experienced, uh, Moscow in particular, uh, this summer, uh, that is once in a millennium event now, uh, will likely become much more routine uh, in the future if we continue, if we, if we don't curb carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, the really, really intense flooding that Pakistan has seen with about a fifth of the country uh, having just really uh, intense rainfall events. Uh, Those kinds of things are likely to be more um, frequent in the future. So more extreme events more often. Uh, And even though we cannot point to any one of those and say, aha, that's a smoking gun that proves that climate uh, is changing, Uh, those are consistent with what we expect to see under uh, a climate-changed world. More and more extreme events, and not just in those countries, but in our own as well. And we have have already seen very uh, significant increases in um, intense precipitation events, more heat waves, more, more extremes. Uh, and we fully expect that in addition to things like sea level rise that are potentially problematic for most of the coastline of the U.S., there are also uh, these other extreme events. Nancy Sutley, you work in the White House. What's the White House doing to get prepared for all of this? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, One of the things that we started uh, pretty early in the administration, and Jane uh, has joined me on, and, and the uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy is to pull together the federal agencies to try to, try to develop a strategy about how, we need, how we're going to deal with the impacts of climate change. So looking at a- adapting uh, to, to the impacts of climate change. And of course, our priority is to, to minimize those impacts by trying to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions uh, mitigate uh, climate change, but we know we're going to have to deal with the inevitable uh, effects of climate change. So uh, we've been working for uh, about a year, um, and we have a report to the president in October uh, looking at what, what does the federal government need to do to organize itself to respond to the impacts of climate change. And so if you think about um, programs that the, that the federal government runs, uh, so, for example, um, you know, if, uh, if the Federal Highway Administration is going to fund a new highway in the Florida Keys, well, they should be thinking about 
uh, Building it what, a lot the, higher. what the risks and the vulnerability uh, to rising uh, sea levels uh, are of that, you know, of that federal investment, uh, and, as well as thinking as uh, agencies who, for example, have land management responsibilities or responsibilities over species, thinking about how, um, for example, forest management plans or uh, wildlife refuges are going to have to recognize changes in the species that they're going to find uh, in that wildlife refuge. Uh, And so we've been working on this uh, for a while uh, and and expect to have this this strategy out. But I think one of the really important things is is we've done a lot of public meetings on this. We've talked to a lot of people. Um, One of the real places where the federal government is going to have to step up is to help um, state and local government deal with these impacts. Yeah. And uh, I came to back to the federal government from local government, and you know we said that local government are the first responders. So um, if it's uh, uh, sea level rise, how is that going to affect uh, San Francisco Bay or uh, the sewage treatment plants that San Fr- the city of San Francisco uh, operates? Uh, wildfire in California, changes in hydrology, and the impact on water resources in California. Um, these are all things that government is going to have to deal with, uh, and we're already starting to see those see those effects. So we're all working really hard uh, to to uh, get this uh, strategy out. It's part of our uh, effort, overall federal uh, sustainability efforts. The president issued an executive order last uh, last October requiring the federal government to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by twenty eight percent. Um, but part of it, also in that executive order is this: um, we've got to deal with uh, how we're going to adapt to climate change and how we're going to help the nation adapt to the inevitable effects of climate change. Dr. Lubchenco. Mm-hmm. Greg, uh, one thing that uh, just to uh, build on what Nancy has said, one thing that we're doing at NOAA is uh, a, an internal reorganization to create uh, a new um, service. We have the fisheries service, we have the weather service, we have the ocean service. This will be the NOAA Climate Service. And it is designed specifically to be able to provide information uh, that, pe- that is understandable and credible about climate change uh, with the idea of having it be uh, able to better inform a lot of decisions, whether it's by businesses or by city governments uh, or uh, other federal agencies. And the, the reality is there's a lot of information that's out there, but it's hard sometimes to find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, we've created a new portal, climate.gov, uh, that is designed to help provide information. And we will be populating that with more and more. Sorry, I need to interrupt. Um, no flash, please. That, that doesn't work for television. OK, thanks. Uh, pardon me for that technical <laughs> interruption. Uh, the use of fossil fuels is what's driving the climate situation. So before we go to the audience questions, I want to ask about, uh, circle back to the Gulf and the, and the oil situation. Um, the Western, you mentioned, uh, Nancy Sutley, the Western governors. Uh, Western senators have proposed a ban on offshore oil drilling uh, along the West Coast. Senator Boxer was here on this stage last week uh, talking about that. Is that something that you support, uh, that the administration supports? Well, the the administration supported uh, no no uh, new drilling on on the west coast, and and the announcement uh, uh, a little back bit in, in Alaska, March, uh, a little bit other than Alaska. 
uh, but very little in Alaska. Um, I think that, uh, um, you know, we, we know we're dependent on fossil fuels and uh, we have to, and we need, you know, we need them to power our economy, but we, we also have this tremendous opportunity to move uh, from being almost entirely dependent on fossil fuels to uh, more efficient use of energy um, and use of renewable energy, and to really uh, take a leadership around, uh, take a leadership around, role around the world in this new clean energy economy. And um, and part of it is, you know, we each as individuals have decisions we make every day about how many, how much fossil fuels we use, and so we can all make decisions uh, to use to use more or less. Um, but we also, as a nation, uh, need to uh, make investments, uh, and we need, as the government, to, to create policies that will provide the incentives uh, to grow this clean energy economy. And I think that's ultimately the answer uh, for dealing with the, whether it's the environmental impacts of oil drilling or the environmental impacts of any way that we, uh, any way that we create energy. And until that happens, though, we need oil. And do you have a preference of whether we get it on land or offshore? Where should we drill? Uh, well, uh, fortunately, that's uh, um, uh, somebody else's somebody else's job. To think <laughs> around. Uh, but you know, I think uh, someone else's backyard. That's what I'll well, I, look. I mean, in response to to the oil spill, I think the Department of the Interior is taking a serious uh, look at what reforms are necessary to ensure the American people that, to the extent that we continue to produce oil. Uh, uh, from our offshore resources, that it's done in a, a safe and re- environmentally responsible manner. I think they realize that they uh, have a, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement in, in how they do that. And uh, the Council on Environmental Quality, we have responsibilities over the National Environmental Policy Act and how agencies carry out their environmental reviews. Uh, we've been working with the Department of the Interior uh, to, to help improve their environmental review practices. Um, there's a real commitment on the part of Secretary Salazar and Michael Bromwich, the head of BOEM, uh, <laughs> the new head of BOEM, to, to reform uh, the agency and to reform uh, how they do business. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, the priority for the administration is to, to, to be able to ensure that, uh, to the American people that uh, that as we as we are reliant on fossil fuels and as we uh, as we develop these resources that we're doing it in a safe and responsible environmentally responsible manner. Nancy Sutley is chair of the Council on Environmental Quality at the White House. She's our guest here at Climate One, along with Dr. Jane Lubchenco, who is administrator of NOAA. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, last question before we go to audience questions. Uh, Dr. Lubchenco, uh, NOAA put out a report recently that said that of the f- nearly 5 million barrels of oil spilled in the Gulf, 75% has been cleaned up by man or mother nature. Now, a group of researchers at Georgia, I believe it's the Georgia Sea Grant Group, uh, estimate that 90% remains and 10% of the oil removed has been burned or skimmed. So how do we know how much oil is still in the ocean? So let's start with um, a couple of things. One, uh, <clears throat> we have a pretty good estimate now of how much oil was released during the entire uh, disaster. Uh, and that's 4.9 million barrels, plus or minus 10%. So that gives us a good starting number. Um, 
what the interagency report actually said was that uh, it's been mischaracterized and misrepresented. So let me set the record straight. What it said was that uh, a quarter of the oil was burned, skimmed, uh, or captured. Mm -hmm. So that's gone from the system. A quarter of the oil has been evaporated. So that's gone from the system. So half of that, 4.9 million barrels, is gone. Not 75%, but half. Uh, another quarter has been dispersed, uh, and that's both chemically and naturally dispersed. And it's important to recognize that twice as much was dispersed naturally as with chemicals. And that quarter, which is about one point two um, million barrels is a very significant amount of oil. And that is, was released into the uh, sub, it, it's below the surface of the water. It never made it to the surface. Um, those are the three pieces of the pie that you can actually either measure directly or estimate with some degree of confidence. The remaining quarter uh, is what's left. If you, if you add up all those and subtract that from 4.9. So that remaining quarter is a combination of light sheen that's at the surface, oil that washed up onto beaches, uh, some of which has been recovered, or tar balls. And it's really hard to estimate or measure any of those. So that's what the pie chart actually said. The uh, Georgia Sea Grant folks... Uh, started with a very different number. They took away the amount that was captured, and so they're starting with a different number, and so, of course, all the percentages are different. Uh, and the calculation that they did for the amount of oil that was um, uh, evaporated was very, very low. They said about 17%. We thought our 25% was actually very, very conservative. Uh, and some estimates are as high as 40%. That's one of the areas where it's hard to know what the exact number is. And so we chose what we thought was a very conservative number. So that's the only real difference between our calculations and theirs. But if you take different sizes of, you know, if, if, if you mm -hmm. run the numbers differently, you From get different, different starting answers. points. Yeah. That's right. So, but I think what we, uh, what, uh, you know, everybody is really intensely curious about where that oil is. And uh, this was uh, a tool that, that was developed by an interagency scientist to help guide the federal response about where to, where to deploy assets, essentially. And it was a very useful tool, but we thought it was important to be transparent and tell people what we knew, which is why we released this, uh, the, the oil budget pie chart, if you will. And I think the most important thing to say about it is that uh, the oil that was dispersed, that is beneath the surface, um, is a very serious concern to us because uh, the oil is toxic even when it's in very, very small microscopic droplets. And those microscopic droplets uh, are not benign. They are very highly dilute, 
ex- except just right around the wellhead, if you uh, go uh, just a short distance from that and you scoop up uh, water even early on that had this dispersed oil in it and bring it to the surface, it looks clear. It was in parts per million. So it's very, very dilute, which is not at all the impression that a lot of people have, that there is this black lake that's beneath the surface that's just moving around under there. It's highly, highly dilute. So that's important for people to know. But dilute does not mean benign. And we have very grave concerns about the potential that that oil had to adversely impact uh, especially young vulnerable stages, fish eggs, fish larvae, shrimp, crab larvae, uh, any of those. And it's very difficult to measure what impact that has. It's going to be years before we really know. And we mentioned bluefin tuna early on. That's one species uh, of, of many that was had eggs and young larval stages in the water column during this event. And so we have very serious concerns about the long-term impact that this oil is going to have on the things beneath the surface. It's, it's bad enough to you know, see the oiled pelicans and the oiled turtles uh, at the surface, and we know that quite a few of those uh, were very seriously impacted. Um, there is some good news in all of that. We launched a very um, aggressive effort to go out and recover turtles and did, in fact, recover a lot of very heavily to moderately oiled uh, turtles, most of whom are juvenile one- to two-year-old Kemp's Ridley turtles. Uh, And these are an endangered species. And uh, of the ones that were recovered alive, uh, they were brought back uh, into rehab uh, and have been cleaned up, and most of them are doing very, very well. And in fact, I had the great treat of releasing the first batch of them back into the Gulf once the oil uh, yeah. was pretty much gone. That's a real success story. I think 1,400 it's, or so of them. I don't, that's one number I heard. But a lot of them, that's a real success story of the Gulf. It is. Uh, let's get to audience questions. We have about 12 minutes left. We'll have brief questions, brief answers, and try to include as many as we can. Welcome. Hi, Jane and Nancy. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I'm Holly Kaufman. Uh, following up on the climate change discussion... My understanding was that, Nancy, your agency, the President's Council on Environmental Quality, had a a group of representatives from different agencies trying to work on um, pushing the climate legislation forward and that that group has now disbanded. And I, uh, that's my understanding, perhaps you can correct me. Uh, But at any rate, the question is, what is at this point the administration's plan or is there one for what we're going to do at the federal level on climate change? We know we can't predict what's going to go on in Congress, but other than knowing that this issue matters to the president and it's still a priority, can you give some specifics about where the federal government is and what the plan is to make something happen in the near future? Sure. Well, uh, climate change, you know, uh, dealing with climate change remains a priority for the administration, for the president. Uh, he, he strongly believes that um, our economic future depends on our uh, ability to transition to a clean energy economy. We've made significant investment in that, uh, the largest uh, federal investment uh, in clean energy through the Recovery Act, almost $90 billion, um, not only uh, 
for things that are off the shelf, but for development, commercialization, and research and development into new energy technologies. So, uh, and, and you know, and these are creating jobs across the country and responding to our economic crisis. Uh, and you know, but in the end, uh, you know, Congress has got to act, and they have to. They have to uh, act on comprehensive energy and climate legislation, uh, and that's that's our goal. Uh, the president's been very vocal about that. Um, uh, the last thing I'd say is, you know, in the meantime, we're we are you know we are taking actions. We are doing things at the at the federal government level to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and um, we work closely with the state of California uh, on setting. Uh, new uh, fuel economy standards for the first time. Uh, EPA and the Department of Transportation have worked together on automobile standards. Uh, they're currently working on truck standards and on the next round of automobile standards at, the, at CEQ. We've been leading an effort, as I said before, on sustainability in the federal government. Uh, the federal government is uh, uh, the largest, single largest energy consumer in the U.S. economy. Uh, 600,000 buildings, 500,000 vehicles, or it's a, we're a significant, uh, small but significant source of greenhouse gas emissions. And so, uh, you know, looking across the agencies uh, at the various things that they can do, uh, not just EPA, but other agencies looking at ways that they can help to promote this clean energy economy. Navy Secretary Ray Mabus was here recently, and I think of all of the government, the, the Navy and the military may be doing more than, than a lot of others. Yes, sir. Uh, Bob Thronson, I'm a clean tech entrepreneur. There's a lot of energy in the oceans other than oil. Uh, so I'm wondering what your organizations are doing to streamline the current regulatory approval process, which is extremely painful now for offshore wind and wave power. Well, uh, we discovered uh, uh, as we as we came to uh, into the administration that uh, we had a couple of agencies uh, uh, claiming jurisdiction over uh, offshore uh, wind development. Uh, that being uh, the Department of the Interior and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, they uh, came to an agreement about how to divide that up. So uh, hopefully that at least uh, takes care of uh, one one log jam, uh, but. Uh, you know, I, the Department of the Interior, Secretary Salazar is very committed to um, seeing uh, what uh, the department can do to um, to it, to ensure that people who want to develop these uh, offshore renewable um, energy sources know what they need to do and streamline the permitting process and give them a straightforward path. Uh, so that process is underway. I think also as part of this. National Ocean Policy, one of the things that we recognized was, you know, there are going to be places in the ocean where um, it's, uh, you know, ideal for uh, wind power or wave power uh, and figuring out sort of what, uh, where it fits in and the other uses of the ocean and try to reduce those conflicts is something that uh, we think uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to do through the National Ocean Council. Nancy Sutley is chair of the Council on Environmental Quality at the White House. Next question, please. The effort at Copenhagen was an attempt to keep global warming to two degrees centigrade or less, and that uh, hasn't happened. And we don't have national legislation at that level either. And MIT came out with a report last year predicting warming of five degrees Celsius by the end of the century. What kind of warming projections are you guys working with, and what effects would levels of warming like that have on the oceans? Well, I think... Uh, 
the focus of the administration has been very much on uh, reducing emissions, uh, both in terms of the federal government's footprint, but also trying to work with Congress, uh, as Nancy has described. Um, so there's no one magic number that we're working with uh, in terms of projections. Uh, but uh, I think it's safe to say that oceans are already exhibiting many signs that uh, they, they, they are already affected uh, and that there is, uh, as with what happens on land, uh, the faster we can reduce emissions, um, the less uh, deleterious most of the impacts are going to be. So I think there is great urgency in reducing emissions as fast as possible. Next question, please. Stephen Knight with Save the Bay. Uh, as you're working on finalizing this uh, ocean policy, I wanted to point you to some uh, examples of general general guidance that we've gotten here in California, some of the leadership that Dr. Lubchenco mentioned that have been very useful to us and practically. Um, the California Ocean Protection Council uh, announced a while, a year or two ago, the trash implementation strategy. And there are some just high-level bullet points in there, like... Um, we need to keep, sorry, but we need to keep this pretty... Yes, brief, so. which just essentially uh, we have been able to take and run with on the ground, getting water board uh, permits enacted, helping getting trash out of the bay and the ocean and the governor's climate adaptation strategy, which here in California we're using to, to battle inappropriate shoreline development. So I just know that you will look to California's leadership on these issues to help provide the whole country with some, some concrete examples of, of policies that can actually be enacted on the ground. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next question, please. Hi, uh, Olaf Hansen. My question is actually about the land-water interface. Um, and I, uh, I don't want to quote you, Nancy, on that nice word that you didn't want to like mention again. Um, I had a chance um, on a transatlantic climate bridge program to see actually the port of Hamburg, which is larger than Long Beach or San Pedro or like, uh, New Orleans, and all of their strategies on adaptation, mitigation, sort of climate zero, uh, um, construction right on in the harbor, no dirty diesel while the vessels are like in port. Um, uh, I'm curious, uh, what is the national ocean policy uh, doing about saving these big investments? Our ports uh, probably going to be like trillions of dollars of investment. Can you talk a little bit about the how that affects? Yeah, how, how do the ports fit in? Well, I think. Uh, I think one of the priority areas, uh, looking at what policy areas we need to deal with immediately, one of them is that that land that land water inf interface, where where the land uh, meets the oceans, and I think also uh, with respect to to adaptation, uh, thinking about what the impacts of sea level rise will be uh, on, on our on on a whole series of infrastructure, whether it's uh, ports, uh, airports, uh, sewage treatment plants, uh, um, you know, houses, uh, you know, floodplains. I mean, you know, we have to think about all these things and look at at policies, the federal policies, uh, and where there need to be changes in the federal policies. And I think it's going to, you know, the agencies uh, ultimately are going to have to look at their own at their own programs uh, and ensure that they're. Um, 
considering uh, the, the risks and vulnerability to climate change of whatever it is they're working with and try to increase the resilience of those things, uh, so whether it's, a, whether it's ports or sewage treatment plants, uh, to the impacts of climate change. And there's an important uh, climate assessment process that's going on right now at the national level. It's just kicked off a few months back that will help to better define uh, what those impacts are um, and one of the, uh, I think, the, the important pieces of our adaptation um, work has been to, is to highlight and uh, to, to recognize that we have to be able to translate that science uh, into policy. Uh, so understanding uh, what those impacts are and how does it translate uh, in, into policy, whether it's at the federal level, the state level, or the local government level. And, and how are we going to pay for it? That's the one that always troubles me. We have regional officials here who say, we know climate change is coming. It's going to cost us more to keep what we already have in terms of infrastructure, water systems, waste systems, et cetera, et cetera. We're laying off teachers. We're laying off police officers. Call us when you have some money to deal with the problem. That's what the state people say. So are the feds going to come in with not just policy, but actually dollars to do this sorts of thing. Because states are broke, cities are broke, and the, ne- the country's broke too. But that's... Well, but I, but I think, I think the, I, the answer, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, uh, the Congress makes the appropriations. Uh, and they and, have a pay-as-you-go process. And they have a pay-as-you-go pay. process. But the federal government spends a lot of money on stuff. Um, they fund a, we fund a lot of things. We fund highways. We fund sewage treatment plants. We, uh, uh, we create the circumstances to fund airports, to fund rail. Um, and so, you the money's know, there if we want to do it. Well, I, so I'll give an example. I, you know, some of my friends from EPA are here. So they, they run this state revolving fund program. That's how low-cost loans for local government to build sewage treatment plants. Um, it makes sense for EPA to think about um, what guidance should they give to those local governments as they're asking for these loans uh, to think about the impacts of climate change. So um, San Francisco has an ocean discharge. Is it going to affect uh, this sea level rise affect that ocean discharge? Uh, so as EPA loans money out to local governments for sewage infrastructure, they can give guidance to those local governments uh, about how to think about the impacts of climate change, so they're not throwing away money. So, in a way, well, the I think, same is true with, of HUD, for example. That's right. And so, you know, uh, in, in terms of building public housing, um, are there are ways to make that public housing more resilient to the mm-hmm. impacts of climate mm-hmm. change, whether it's extreme weather events or or more uh, hot weather uh, things like that. So, I think there are a lot of places where the federal government already funds programs that, considering how climate change may impact those programs sure. is important so that we make the best use of those dollars. And in the, in the end, uh, we can be more resilient and less vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And that's been one of the real benefits of this Climate Adaptation Task Force, that there's been a transfer of information from science agencies like mine that have information about sea level rise or climate change to HUD or Department of Transportation so that there can be better awareness and, 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 and understanding of how can we spend the dollars that exist in the most climate-smart ways. And, and, and we, what we've heard from a lot of local governments uh, and, and state government also is 
is, is what they, they also need is information. How yep. do we bring this information into our own decision making? And that's a really important thing that the federal government is almost uniquely positioned to do because of the extensive scientific uh, database and capabilities within the federal government. So we're tackling government. some of those big challenges. Uh, unfortunately, we have time for one last quick question. So quick question, quick answers. Apologies <laughs> to those who we didn't get to, but uh, that's the planes to catch here. So. Okay, thank you. My name is Roger Thomas. I represent uh, a whole bunch of salmon fishermen. And salmon have survived in the oceans forever. And we all know what the problems are with the ocean. I like your words when you talk about enhancement and sustainability and all those things. Has the consul considered how they're going to look at the real problems with salmon and work with the federal agencies or mandate them somehow? to keep the salmon going the way they should be. And uh, that's basically my question, and I realize it's a great big bureaucracy that's going on and you have troubles, but the basic problem is water and all the other things that I could go on about. So somehow you need to start some coordination. Thank you very much. And for Dr. Luchenko, I'd like to compliment her on the activities of National Marine Fisheries and the biop that they did last year. The fishing community supports that 100%. Thank you. Let me just say briefly uh, in response that um, salmon really illustrate many of these land-sea connections. And the fact that our former policies haven't really understood how what happens on the land affects the ocean part and vice versa. And one of the opportunities for this National Ocean Council, the regional planning bodies, uh, is to begin working with states and incorporate more of these land-sea connections. Uh, and salmon are a, a perfect reason to be doing that uh, and, 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 and doing it in a much better way than we have in the past. I was going to give that same answer. Thank you. <laughs> well, then. well, I don't why I'm pleased that I, I was going to give the same answer. So we're done. So we're done. Okay. Our thanks to Nancy Sutley, Chair of the Environmental Council on Environmental Quality at the White House, and Dr. Jane Lubchenco, Administrator of NOAA, for their comments here at Climate One Today. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much.